Father God, we thank you so much for your words. We thank you uh, for the book of Joshua, Lord. And we pray now as we have our last week in it for a while, Lord, that you would uh, show us more of yourself, that we would delight uh, in the faithful God we see, uh, that you would help us to apply it to our lives and worship you uh, as we look at what you have to say to us today. In your name. Amen. Uh, it's been great to hear over the last few weeks what God has been uh, teaching people in the last eight weeks of Joshua at our members meetings. Um, we've heard people encouraged by seeing God's kindness uh, in saving those far from him. Uh, we've heard of people challenged uh, to actively obey uh, in a response to faith. We've heard uh, people reminded of the holy justice and right anger of our perfect God. It's been encouraging to hear. And I wonder what your main takeaways have been. Um, it'll be something which maybe we'll look at in home groups in a week or two. For me, um, there have been lots, but one which struck me, particularly as preparing today, is just how messy life is. I don't know if you've seen that, uh, how messy people are in the book, and then how God in his kindness and justice deals with them in the midst of that mess. We've seen uh, right back in chapter two, the prostitute Rahab, whose lies uh, who lies but is saved, the spies who were hanging out in the brothel, the sins of Achan dealt with, the forgetfulness of God's people, the lack of leadership we're going to look at here from Joshua, messy people uh, living messy lives. And when we look at it, I find it challenging and I find it encouraging because we're just the same, aren't we? We live messy lives and we recognise this when we're in honest moments, don't we? I've heard it. Um, described as the sort of the gap that we feel. Uh, and so the call here is to mind the gap, if you've seen that on the underground. The gap uh, between what God asks of us and then what we actually do. Uh, but the gap maybe between how we feel on a Sunday afternoon, we're amongst his people, we're listening to his word, we're singing his praises. And then Monday morning, as we head into work or school or home, overwhelmed, tempted to compromise at a loss the gap between the sort of beautiful uh, sorted exterior we present to one another and then the mess we feel in our hearts the, the sin the pain the lowliness that spills into our lives there's a gap and and often we, we feel a fear don't we of being exposed as being hypocrites people who say one thing and do another maybe you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you also recognise that gap. Maybe you feel you've got to be more sorted in order to become a Christian. Or maybe you actually see the gap in the lives of Christians and so you're reluctant to embrace Christianity because of it. Well, hopefully, as you've seen in Joshua, and if you read the Bible, the Bible is wonderfully honest and realistic about God's people. It is full of messy characters again and again. All of its heroes, apart from one, were flawed. It's full of messy people living messy lives, just like you and just like me. So this week, as we finish our series in Joshua, we'll pick it up again briefly in January. Uh, we can ask this question. How do we live as people mindful of the gap? How do we live as God's people today at home, at work, at school? How do we live as God's people on Monday morning, not just Sunday afternoon? So let's look at this story of the Gibeonite deception. Look at this biblical story and we'll once again see our faithful God, the God who's faithful to his people, faithful to his character 
and see how it can equip us to live today and on Monday morning. So firstly, three points. How do we live in the mess? We live in full dependence on God. If you remember, uh, if you were here last week at the end of chapter eight, we left uh, as the Israelites continue to enter the land God has promised. They've built an altar uh, and they've listened to Joshua read the word of the Lord. They've renewed the covenant between them and God. And now it's time to continue taking the land. And the rest of Joshua, uh, you can read it yourself. The rest of Joshua bases primarily them taking the land and then dividing the land amongst the tribes. But before they go on to take the rest of the land, there's another hiccup here. The local Canaanites, those who were previously in the land, the one we saw God justly removing a few weeks ago, were worried. So we see at the start of chapter nine, as Esther read it, the kings, these kings are repeated again and again. Well done, Esther, with the names. The kings of all the towns and cities nearby band together to fight against Israel, except one, the Gibeonites. Now, these guys seem pretty clever. One Bible translation calls them cunning. Um, Here it says in our translation, they resorted to a ruse. You can imagine sort of Ocean's 11, Ocean's 12, that kind of film being made about this. It was crafty. They were clever. It was based on research. They'd done their homework. In the law, in Deuteronomy, God had made a provision for Israel to make peace treaties with faraway nations. The problem was Gibeon was only about 20 miles away. Not that far, really. Um, I've got a map. There we go. You can see it there. You may not be understand that to scale too much, but it's, it's not far at all. It's about a day's march we see later, or a night's march, 20 miles away. It's not far at all. Gibeon and then Joshua is with the Israelites at Gilgal as they begin to kind of take uh, the, the, uh, the promised land. So what did the Gibeonites do? They were worried. They were fearful. So they conned the Israelites. They tired out their donkeys they made all their clothes and possessions old. Have you ever done sort of a craft when you were at school when you had to like make a letter look old, you dip it in tea? You can imagine them doing that. Uh, they got mouldy food somehow, bread, came before Joshua. In verse six, as we read down, they said here, we have come from a distant country, make a treaty with us. It's crafty. It is lying. We looked at that and we looked at Rahab. And the question is, what will Joshua do? And verse 14 tells us the narrator the author of this book tells us the israelites sampled the moldy provisions and here's the kicker but they did not inquire of the lord it's a crucial failure in leadership from joshua he did not inquire of the lord you see uh, when he was commissioned as leader from moses it was made explicit what he was to do when it came to making decisions this is numbers 21 it says this it says Uh, Give him, this is Joshua, some of your authority so the whole Israelite community will obey him. Joshua is to stand before Eliezer the priest, who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. At his command, he and the entire community of the Israelites will go out and at his command they will come in. Joshua was told what to do when it came to making decisions. He was told to inquire of the Lord and he didn't do it. We see it in, he kind of asks some good questions, doesn't he? He interviews the Gibeonites. Where are you from? How do we know where you're from? But if you notice it, if you read it again, they dodge his questions. They never answer them directly. They don't directly lie. They deceive. And so what Joshua does was he, he makes a very reasonable decision. He uses all the evidence he has available. He tests the bread. He looks at their clothes. But 
the decision turns out to be the wrong one. Joshua doesn't do much wrong, it seems, but it wasn't right. His problem and his sin here is his independence. And this is a key lesson for us to learn today. As people living messy lives in a messy world, will we live as people who depend on the Lord? As God's people, as we live our lives, we need to be aware of the, the subtle unbelief that says, I have this under control all the time. God, in his kindness, had me prepare this passage this week, and it was brutally convicting for me. Because this is me. Joshua got complacent. He was independent. Remember, back to the Battle of Ai in chapter 7 at the start, Israel was surprisingly defeated. And what did Joshua do? He tore his clothes, it says. He fell face down to the ground before the Ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. He spoke to the Lord. He inquired of them, what's gone wrong? How have we been defeated? He inquired of the Lord when we was faced with this situation. And when he got the answer, he rooted out the sin of Achan and his family. And then they defeated Ai. In this instance, he didn't do it. You see, our needs are no different to Israel's. We need not to detect just the obvious enemies that come across us or the obvious problems in our way, but the more subtle ones too. We need wisdom about how to function, about how to live in this world just as they did. We need to ask for God's help to do that. One of my favourite verses in the Bible, my sister texted to me on my 18th birthday, is Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6. I wonder if you're familiar with it. I say that, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in your own understanding with all your heart and lean not on the Lord. In all your ways, submit to your own wisdom and you will work it out. Does that sound right? I've got that wrong. I've got that wrong. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Where in our lives do we not depend on God? Where do we feel like we don't need to, where we just use logic and reason as Joshua does here? Because you see, dependence on God, it's, it's not only one of our key values here at Town Church, we talk about it a lot, it's also a key mark of godliness. I prayed for it that we would be Christ-like, godly, because dependence actually really reflects God's character. You see, if God was totally single-minded and independent, then independence would be godly. But in God, as we see him, Father, Son and Spirit, we see how the Son always depends on the Father. So genuine godliness is actually marked by being dependent. When we don't feel needy, we don't pray. We read a book called A Praying Life last year. If you've not read it, I'd encourage you to. It's super. Uh, a lot of us were challenged by it. It's written by a guy called Paul Miller. And as he was learning to live as a Christian, especially in the challenges of parenting his disabled daughter, it talked about he needed to learn dependence. I read some of his chapters on that again this week. And he reminded us that strong Christians pray more. Mature Christians pray more. Not because they're strong, but because they realise how weak and needy they are. Joshua obviously didn't feel needy in this instance. He thought he had it sorted. I've worked it out. I've got my logic. I've learned my lessons. I've got it, God. It's okay. You give me a brain to work it out, so I'll do that. But as we grow as Christians, we should not feel more self-sufficient, but more needy. 
if you're not growing in an awareness of your neediness, then you can't be sure you're growing as a Christian. Because prayer ultimately flows from his dependence. It's the total antithesis to self-dependence. It says no to our independence. It's an exercise of faith. I wonder, could our church be known for one of prayer and dependence? Not just doing what I do all the time, making excuses. Subtle ones, often unspoken ones around dependence, around prayer. I say, that seems too small to pray about to God. I say, Lord, I've done this before, I've got this. Or I don't need wisdom about that issue, God. I've got a blog I can read instead. Or I forgot to ask God about that. Or 6.30 on Friday, it's really early, God. In what areas of life are we not depending on God? Parents, as Paul Miller challenges us, are we praying together about how we parent wisely? As he says, it took me 17 years to realise I couldn't parent on my own. He's not just talking about with his wife. Let's listen to Joshua and not let it be 17 years. Employees, employers here in this room, are we praying about how to do our work wisely in a godly way? Are we praying about how we manage our employees, how we invest in them well, how we shape their work and their worldview and how we work with them? All of us, do we pray for wisdom in how we live and speak for Jesus amongst our friends? Do we get on our knees recognising our inability to save anyone, to reason with anyone, to just use logic and instead depend on the one who can? Or do we just despair that nothing seems to be happening and no one seems to be interested? If we think we can do life on our own, we won't take prayer seriously. We learn from Joshua's mistake here. Will we stop chasing the, the idols of productivity, of self-sufficiency and instead be dependent children? And instead of letting the busyness of life keep us from prayer, let it drive us to it. How do we live in the mess? We live in full dependence on God. It's the first thing we see. Secondly, we see we live in the mess by receiving and giving mercy. Joshua made a mistake. And in verse 15 and onwards, we see the consequences of his mistake. Let me read from verse 15. So Joshua made a treaty of peace with them, that is the Gibeonites, to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbours living near them. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders answered, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. So this is what we will do to them. We'll let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. So the leader's promise to them was kept. You may have read that, had some sympathy for the grumbling Israelites. The deception's been uncovered. Joshua, surely Joshua, just ignore the treaty, don't you? It's void, isn't it? It's time for something we're used to at the moment, a political U-turn, Joshua. But Joshua keeps his oath. He keeps his words. He remains faithful to what he has promised. He stops the Israelites destroying Gibeon. Because two wrongs don't make a right, do they? And Joshua remains a man of his word. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. We're called as God's people to be men and women who keep to our word, who are trustworthy in what we say and what we do. I wonder if we are. 
We're also, like Joshua does here, to be people who keep obeying God's word, even in the midst of the consequences of our sin. Joshua here had to face the consequences of his sin, his failure to inquire of the Lord about the Gibeonites, his lack of faith and his long lasting consequences. It lasts for centuries. And we know this ourselves, don't we, as we look in the mirror. Our sin has consequences, some of which may be ongoing in our lives. Maybe we have current struggles in our friendships and our relationships due to words we've said or things we've done. Maybe we struggle to get rid of, uh, of, of images in our mind from sins committed or fantasies, dreams. Maybe we have financial and legal obligations we need to keep off the back of wrong decisions made. It's easy, isn't it, to let a sense of failure then creep into wallowing guilt and shame. But friends, don't be paralysed by past mistakes. Instead, repent of those sins and then get on with delighting in God and obeying him now. Joshua didn't wallow, he made a mistake. We see, we're going to look in communion a bit, the past is past. At the cross, our sin is totally dealt with through eternity. Whilst we recognise in this messy world, there's still consequences for our rebellion. Joshua demonstrated this and we see him now depending on God. He now reflects God's character of mercy with the Gibeonites. This is the God we worship. God shows real grace and mercy to them. He lets them live. And we see this here. We see God's mercy to them through Joshua. When he interviews them following their deception, verse 24, it says this. Joshua is asking them, why did you deceive us? And they say, well, your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land, to wipe out all of its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that is why we did this. We're now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And this is what they are to this day. God gives the Gibeonites what they wanted, a peace treaty, a life of service. And we sit there and think, that's not fair. We can see ourselves in the Gibeonites, can't we? Did we always come before God with total honesty and integrity? Did, did our Christian lives begin with us having everything sorted and perfect before God? God shows the Gibeonites through Joshua real mercy and grace. He puts them as servants, which is what they wanted. Where? At the altar of the Lord. In the temple, where they're going to look and see God's grace and favour day after day after day. Once again, like we saw with Rahab, we see God showing mercy to those who don't deserve it. What an encouragement that is. God can't be outmaneuvered by human plans and cunning. And this is the glory of God. His grace can turn a curse into a blessing. It's incredible what he does with the Gibeonites. And we see why. We see they said we'd heard about what God had done. We'd heard about what God had said. And this is because they've encountered God's word. And we see how God's word in history changes people's hearts in the present. We we see it here with the Gibeonites. They've heard the stories. We saw it with Rahab. She'd heard the stories. And it affected how they lived in the present. Anyone in this room following Jesus is testimony to that truth. This is what we believe about the Bible. It's not just a a history book. We've not just been looking at Joshua and looking at history. It's a life-changing book. 
that continues to be at work in the world today. In the Bible, God does more than just ask us to consider what he once was like. It calls us to follow him now, to testify who he is now, and testify that who he is now is who he has always been. Rahab saw that. She heard the stories of the past, put her trust in God in the present. The Gibeonites did the same. And later, amazingly, in the book of Nehemiah, we see the Gibeonites now integral to the worship of God. We see them counted as part of God's people. We see them saved. They become followers of God. What a God we have. His grace washes over all human sin and failure. And once again, as we've seen throughout Joshua, God is the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story of the Gibeonites, as he is for us. Then we move into chapter 10. And we continue to see God's victory. We can see his mercy as we move there. We hear how the, the five kings near to Gibeon, they've heard what happened with Gibeon. We heard the treaty that had been made with Israel. And so they decide to go and take on Gibeon, to take him out. And Gibeon then calls on Joshua to save them. Verse 6, it says, Joshua, do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua keeps his word and goes to fight for the Gibeonites. Or more accurately, as we see throughout this bit of chapter 10, God works through Joshua and his army. God is the one who's the hero of this story again. It's littered with words, with verses, which remind us that God is totally in charge, that he's the one who's going to take the initiative. He's the one who is totally in control. So let's re-emphasize point one is essential here. How do we live in the mess? In full dependence on God. Because we see what happens. Two things we need to look at. Firstly, Joshua prays. He's inquiring of the Lord again. Secondly, then God acts. Verse 7, Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, see the Lord and Joshua speaking, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. Joshua speaking to God and then we see God act and we see God act in such a way that it is totally clear that God is the one in charge. Verse 10, God throws the opposition into total confusion. Verse 11, he hurled hailstones down on the armies and killed more people than the Israelites did. Verse 12, God somehow lengthened the day until the battle was won. And these verses, this story is given to remind us that God is totally in charge here. He is the one who saves. Now, I imagine as Esther read uh, verses 12 to 14, some of you are particularly interested in them as we see the sun stand still. It's, it's an incident. It's a story often used in debates around science versus religion. So we need to take a quick look. It's a difficult passage. Uh, and I'm straight off the bat going to disappoint you by saying I'm not going to make an authoritative statement on it. Because we... We want this, don't we, in our sort of particularly our Western culture. We want a scientific answer. We want to answer the how question. How on earth did that happen? How did the sun stand still? Because it seems to. Because I, I'm not a scientist at all, but it seems that if the sun stood still for a day, that would lead us to lots of further scientific questions, stuff around gravity and things like that. Um, ask a scientist what it would mean. So what did happen? Well, I've read a number of commentaries and... As I read, I don't get a scientific answer from them. If that's something which troubles you, I'd encourage you to look at it yourself. I can point you in the direction of some things. Well, whilst remembering that the how it happened is not the key point here. The key point in this book is not how it happened. 
It's not the key point God is making here. That's really important to emphasise. When it comes to these issues, the Bible's not attempting to be a scientific book. It's a theological, historical book. But what did happen? Well, I think there's two options the commentaries put. First option is that this phrase used, this sort of poem, this prayer of Joshua, make the sun stand still, and it says the sun stopped in the middle of the sky. The first option is it's poetical. The quote here, it says it's from the book of Jashar. It's a poetry book. Uh, and the phrase maybe is meant to mean it seemed like a really long day. It's hyperbole. That, that is possible. It's possible it's poetical. The second option is to read it literally. To say that in some way a great miracle occurred. I think you can argue quite understandably that if God is God, if he is king over all creation, we saw it with the crossing of the, of the Jordan. We see Jesus prove it again and again in the Gospels. Then he can do this either through stopping the sun at day or at night. It's possible, but I can't tell you how it happened. What we do know is that the day seemed longer than normal and that God, God answered Joshua's prayers. And this is the main miracle we're meant to focus on. Verse 14 again, this is what it says. There has never been a day like it before or since. And we go, well, yeah, the day was lengthened. That's not the point of the author here. There's never been a day like it before or since. A day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. The miracle, the remarkable miracle we have to remind and encouraged of here is that God heard the voice of the man and gave mercy and victory to them despite the mistakes we've looked at already. God heard Joshua's prayer and he hears ours too. Now, it's key to remember, Joshua's prayer was totally in line with God's will. Remember verse 8? God had promised Joshua he would win the war. Joshua prayed in line with his will. God is not a supernatural slot machine. I say this and I get this. We're not to take a verse like this and use it as an excuse to be like this guy. I never heard of him until I read about this. This is King Canute. Uh, he ordered the sea waves. You can see in there, ordering the sea waves, not encroach on his throne sitting on the beach. And then he was... Aghast when the sea washed him away. We have no power to stop the tide coming in. However much we can psych ourselves up to imagine that it's God's will. Joshua could not have prayed like this if he was not well instructed in God's will as revealed in his word. This isn't meant to discourage us from praying, just to encourage us to pray in line with his will. Which means we need to know his will. And we can, as we look at his word and the promises in it, we can claim many of the promises of the Bible for ourselves. People in this room, are we worried about the cost of living? Well, Matthew 6 says this, says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. You're struggling with anxiety. Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And here's the promise, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Like Joshua, we're struggling to know what to do in a situation. James says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. We can depend on God. He is dependable. The encouragement here in Joshua 10 is that once again, God showed himself faithful to his people. So the call is to depend on him. He's big enough. God is big enough. He's, 
in control enough to deal with life's complexity, with the compromise, with the mess. He is a God of messy people like you and me. He's a God of amazing grace. Joshua messed up, but God's plans, his sovereign plans will not be thwarted. And he continues to act in our lives, doesn't he? In his mercy, he restrains us from our sin. In his grace, he teaches perseverance and patience and dependence. He uses us to serve others, to bring glory to his name. He uses our weaknesses and our foolishness to draw us closer to himself. God is a God of amazing grace in the midst of the mess. Do we marvel at that? Do you know that? It's an amazing encouragement. Paul writes in Romans 5, verse 19, For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. And then one of my favourite verses, one I cling to, verse 20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Some of us struggle to see that in our lives. Our lives just seem full of mess. But all of us can see his grace at the cross. Because of the death of Jesus on the cross, we have a fresh start. We have grace. How do we live in the mess? We look to the cross. We look at the true and better Joshua. Jesus goes to the cross displaying his total kindness and mercy and all at his initiative as we saw in Joshua 10. We're about to celebrate communion together and communion is not a meal for perfect, flawless, sorted people. It's for flawed, sinful, messy, compromised people who trust on his grace each day. We look to him for salvation. So friends, we started there. Mind the gap between Sunday and Monday, between our exterior and our interior. We saw the Israelites at the end of chapter 8 in an outward display of worship, an altar built, the law read. We saw how they then neglected their inner lives. They hadn't minded the gap between that outward display and their inner life. Joshua didn't pray, didn't depend on God, didn't seek his wisdom. That they faced the consequence of their sin. So mind the gap. And as we go out into the rest of the week, let's be a people who receive and give him mercy. As Joshua reflected God there with the Gibeonites, let's live in full dependence on God because we don't need to do life alone. We all live messy lives in the gaps. So let's come to God for salvation, come to God for everything. Because as we've seen throughout Joshua, he is our faithful God, even when we are faithless. Let me pray and then we're going to sing. Father God, we thank you for how throughout the book of Joshua we are seeing your faithfulness. Your faithfulness to your character, who you are, doesn't change. And your faithfulness to your people, even when they are faithless. Lord, we recognise that. We recognise our mess. We recognise our sin. We recognise our, our need for salvation, Lord. And we praise you that you're faithful to your promise that what Jesus has done on the cross has paid for our sin. Father, we thank you that you are our faithful God. Amen.